It signifies endurance. It is that which enables the saints to persevere in the face of discouragements, to hold on his way despite all opposition. In like manner, Christian courage is not a constitutional endowment, but a heavenly endowment. It is not a natural quality, but a supernatural thing. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, a guilty conscience filling them with terror. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 He who truly fears God is fearless of man. That spiritual courage or boldness has shone forth in many a weak, timid, shrinking woman. Those who would have trembled at the prospect of walking alone through a cemetery on a dark night shrank not from confessing Christ when a fiery death was the certain sequel. The boldness of Elijah in denouncing Ahab to his face and in confronting single-handed his army of, of false prophets must not be attributed to his natural constitution but ascribed to the operations of the Holy Spirit. Number six, Elijah was a man who experienced a sad fall and this also is recorded for our instruction not as an excuse for us to shelter behind but as a solemn warning to take to heart. Few indeed are the recorded blemishes in Elijah's character yet he did not attain to perfection in this world remarkably as he was honored by his master yet sin had not been eradicated from his being glorious indeed was the treasure which he bore out nevertheless God saw fit to make it manifest that an earthen vessel carried the same strikingly it was in his faith and courage he failed for he took his eye off the Lord for a brief season and then fled in terror from a woman. What force does that give to the exhortation, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall? 1 Corinthians 10.12 We are just as dependent upon God for the maintenance of our spiritual graces as we are for the bestowment of them. But though he fell, Elijah was not utterly cast down. Divine grace sought him, delivered him from his despondency, restored him to the paths of righteousness and so renewed him in the inner man that he was as faithful and courageous afterward as he had been formerly. Number seven, Elijah was a man who had a supernatural exit from this world. As this will be the subject of the closing chapter, we will not now anticipate our remarks thereon. Chapter 35, The Chariot of Fire after Elijah's interview with King Ahaziah, we read no more of him till we come to the closing scene of his earthly career. But from the hints conveyed by the divine record in 2 Kings 2, we gather that his last days here were not idle ones. If not engaged in anything spectacular and dramatic, he was employed in doing what was good and useful. It would seem that both he and Elisha not only instructed the people in private, but also founded and superintended seminaries or schools of the prophets in various parts of the land. By training them to read and teach the word of God, those young men were prepared for the ministry and to carry on the work of reformation in Israel, and therein the prophets were well employed. Such sacred activity, though less striking to the senses, was of far greater importance, for the effect produced by witnessing supernatural wonders though stirring at the time, soon wears away, whereas the truth received in the soul abides forever. The time spent by Christ in training the apostles produced more lasting fruit than the prodigies he performed in the presence of the multitudes. Elijah had now almost finished his course. The time of his departure was at hand. 
How then does he occupy his last hours? What does he do in, a, in anticipation of the great change impending? Does he shut himself up in a cloister that he may not be disturbed by the world? Does he return to his chamber that he may devote his last moments to devout meditation and fervent supplication, making his peace with God and preparing to meet his judge? No, indeed. He had made his peace with God many years before and had lived in blessed communion with him day after day. As for getting ready to meet his judge, he had not been so mad as to postpone that all-important task till the last. He had, by divine grace, spent his life in walking with God, in performing his bidding, in trusting in his mercy, and in experiencing his favor. Such a man is always getting ready for the great change. It is only the foolish virgins that are without oil when the bridegroom comes. It is only the worldling and ungodly who put off preparation for eternity till their last moments. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Genesis 3.19 Out of the ground was man's body taken, and because of sin, unto the ground it shall revert. More than three thousand years had passed since that sentence was pronounced against the fallen race, and Enoch had been the only person who was exempted from it. Why he, rather than Noah, Abraham, Samuel, should have been so honored we know not, for the Most High does not always deign to give a reason in explanation of his conduct. He ever does as he pleases, and the exercise of sovereignty marks all his ways. In the saving of souls, exempting sinners from merited condemnation and conferring unmerited blessings, he divideth to every man severally as he will. 1 Corinthians 12.11 and none can say him nay. Thus it is in connection with those whom he spares from the grave. Another was now on the point of being transported bodily to heaven. But why such peculiar honor should be conferred upon Elijah rather than any other of the prophets we cannot say, and it is idle to speculate. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, 2 Kings 2.1, that the prophet had received previous notification of the Lord's gracious intention to give him a supernatural exit from this world appears by his conduct in going from place to place by divine direction. Gilgal marked the starting point of his final journey, and most suitably so. It had been the first stopping place of Israel after they crossed the Jordan and entered the land of Canaan. Joshua 4.19 It was there the children of Israel pitched their camp and set up the tabernacle. It was there they had kept the Passover and did eat of the old corn of the land instead of on the manna on which they had so long been miraculously fed. Joshua 5 verses 10 through 12 And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. 2.2 Various conjectures have been made as to why Elijah would have Elisha now part company with him, that he wished to be alone, that modesty and humility would hide from human eyes the great honor to be bestowed upon him, that he would spare his companion the grief of final departure, that he would test the strength of his attachment and faith, we incline to the last. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. Verse 2 When first called by Elijah, he had declared, I will follow thee. 
1 Kings 19, verse 20. Did he really mean it? Would he cleave to the prophet unto the end? Elijah tried his faith to determine whether his avowal was actuated by a fleeting impulse or if it were a steadfast resolution. Elisha had meant what he said and refused now to forsake his master when given the opportunity to do so. He was determined to have the benefit of the prophet's company and instruction as long as he could and clave to him probably in hope of receiving his parting blessing. So they went down to Bethel, which means the house of God. This was another place of hallowed memory, for it was the spot where Jehovah had first appeared unto Jacob and given him the vision of the mystic ladder. Here the sons of the prophets at the local school came and informed Elisha that the Lord would remove his master that very day. He told them he knew that already and bade them hold their peace, verse 3, for they were intruding. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho, verse 4. As the Savior made as though he would have gone further, Luke 24:28, when putting to the proof the affection of his disciples on the way to Emmaus, so the prophet told his companion to tarry ye here at Bethel the place of such sacred memories. But as the two disciples had constrained Christ to abide with him, so nothing could tempt Elisha to forsake his master. So they came to Jericho, which was on the border of the land from which Elijah was departing. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. Verse 8. The force of this seems to be, What is the use of clinging so tenaciously to your master? He will be taken from you on the morrow. Why not stay here with us? But like the great apostle at a later date, Elisha conferred not with flesh and blood, but adhered to his resolution. Oh, that like grace may be granted both writer and reader when tempted to follow not the Lord fully. And Elijah said unto him, Carry, I pray thee, here. For the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. Verse 6. Much ground had now been covered. Was Elisha tiring of the journey, or would he continue to the end? How many run well for a while, and then grow weary of well-doing? Not so, Elisha. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. Verse 6. How that reminds us of Ruth's decision when Naomi bade her, Return thou after thy sister-in-law. She replied, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Chapter 1, verse 16. And they too went on, leaving the school of the prophets behind them. The young believer must not suffer even happy fellowships with the saints to come in between him and his own individual communion with the Lord. How richly Elisha was rewarded for his fidelity and constancy we shall see in the sequel. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by the Jordan. Verse 7 Probably because they expected to witness Elijah's translation into heaven, a favor, however, which was granted only to Elisha. Nevertheless, they were permitted to witness a remarkable miracle the dividing asunder of the waters of Jordan so that the prophet and his companion passed over dryshod. 
how the sovereignty of God is displayed everywhere. The multitudes witnessed Christ's miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fishes, but not even all of the twelve beheld his transfiguration on the mount. It had pleased God to make these young prophets acquainted with the supernatural exit of his servant from this world, yet they were not permitted to be actual spectators of the same. Why, we know not, but the fact remains and from it we should take instruction. It illustrates a principle which is revealed on every page of Holy Writ and is exemplified all through history, that God makes distinction not only between man and man, but also between his saints, between one of his servants and another, distributing his favors as it pleases him. And when any dare to challenge his high sovereignty, his answer is, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Matthew 20, verse 15. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. Verse 8. This dividing of the Jordan was a fitting prelude to the prophet's rapture on high. As Matthew Henry pointed out, it was the preface to Elijah's translation into the heavenly Canaan, as it had been to the entrance of Israel into the earthly Canaan. Joshua 3, verses 15 through 17. Elijah and his companion might have crossed the river by ferry, as other passengers did, but the Lord had determined to magnify his servant in his exit from the land, as he had Joshua in his entrance thereto. It was with his rod Moses had divided the sea, Exodus 14:16. Here it was with his mantle Elijah divided the river, each the insignia or badge of his distinctive office. That there is a deeper meaning and broader application to this remarkable incident scarcely admits of a doubt. The Jordan is the well-known figure of death. Elijah is here a type of Christ, as Elisha is to be regarded as representative of all who cleave to and follow him. Thus we learn that a safe and comfortable way through death has been provided for his people by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Verse 9. Here is proof that Elijah had been testing his companion when he bade him tarry at the previous stopping places. For certainly he had not offered such an invitation as this had he been contravening his expressed desire. The prophet was so pleased with Elisha's affection and attendance that he determined to reward him with some parting blessing. And what a testing of his character was this. Ask what I shall do for thee. One of the Puritans has called attention to the significance of Elijah's before I be taken from thee. For it had been useless for Elisha to invoke his master afterward. He was not to be prayed unto as a mediator of intercession as Pappas blasphemously teach concerning saints and angels. Christ is the only one in heaven who intercedes for God's people on earth. How attentively we need to read the language of Holy Writ. That single word, before, gives the lie to one of the cardinal errors of Rome. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Verse 9. Here was his noble answer to Elijah's, What shall I do for thee? Rising above both the lusts and sentiments of the flesh, he asked not anything nature might have coveted, but that which was spiritual, seeking not his own aggrandizement, 
but the glory of God. We do not think he asked for something superior to what his master had enjoyed, but a, but a portion double that which was communicated to the other prophets. He was to take Elijah's place on the stage of public action. He was to be the leader of the sons of the prophets, as verse 15 intimates, and therefore he wished to be equipped for his mission. Rightly did he covet earnestly the best gifts, for he asked for a double portion of the spirit of prophecy, of wisdom and grace, of faith and strength, that he might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Verse 10 Elisha had not asked for riches or glory, wisdom or power, but for a double portion of the spirit that rested on and wrought through his master. In terming it a hard thing, Elijah appears to have emphasized the great value of such a bestowment. It was as though he said, That is much for you to expect. We regard Matthew Henry's comment as a pertinent one. Those are best prepared for the spiritual blessings that are most sensible of their worth and their own unworthiness to receive. Elisha felt his own weakness and utter insignificance for such a work as that to which he was called, and therefore he desired to be qualified for his eminent office. Nevertheless, if thou see me, when I am taken from thee, it should be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. Verse 10 This is very blessed. His request would be granted, and he was to know it by the sign mentioned. A sight of Elijah's translation would be the proof that his request was agreeable to the will of God, and a pledge of his desire being gratified. But in order thereto, his eye must continue fixed upon his master. Chronologists reckon that the ministry of Elisha lasted at least twice the length of his predecessors, and apparently he wrought double the number of miracles. The grand moment had arrived. Elijah had fully discharged the commission God had given him. He had preserved his garments from being spotted by the apostate religious world. Now his conflict was over, his course run, his victory won. He had no home or resting place here, so he pressed onward to his heavenly rest. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Verse 11 It is to be carefully noted that God did not send his chariot for Elijah while he was in Samaria. No, the land of Israel was polluted, and Ichabod was written over it. It was on the far side of Jordan, in the place of separation, that this signal honor was conferred upon the prophet. As the souls of the saints are conveyed to paradise by the angels, Luke 16:22, so we believe it was by celestial beings, the highest among them, that Elijah was taken to heaven. Seraphim signifies fiery, and God is said to make his angels a flaming fire, Psalm 104, verse 4, while cherubim are called the chariots of God, Psalm 68, verse 17, and see also Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 6, verse 1. Elijah was to remove to the world of angels, and so angels were sent to conduct him thither, Matthew Henry, that he might ride in state and triumph to the skies like a conqueror. In the translation of Elijah, we have clear testimony to the fact that there is a reward for the righteous. Often this appears to be flatly contradicted by the experiences of this life. We behold the wicked flourishing like the green bay tree, 
while the child of God has a bare temporal subsistence. But it shall not always be thus. Elijah had peculiarly honored God in a day of almost universal apostasy, and now God was pleased highly to honor him. As he had taught men at the constant hazard of his life the knowledge of the only true God, so he would now teach them by his being taken alive into heaven that there is a future state, that there is a world beyond the skies into which the righteous are admitted, where they shall henceforth dwell with God and all the angelic hosts in glory everlasting. Future bliss shall infinitely compensate present sacrifices and sufferings. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Elijah's supernatural exit from this world also demonstrated the fact that the human body is capable of immortality. It could not witness to the truth of resurrection, for he never died. But his corporal removal to heaven furnished indubitable evidence that the body is capable of being immortalized and of living in celestial conditions. In the translation of Elijah we see how much better are God's ways than ours. In an hour of despondency the prophet had wanted to leave this world before God's time had come for him to do so, and by a way far inferior to that which he had appointed. Under the juniper tree he had requested that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. 1 Kings 19.4 Had he been granted his desire, how much had he lost? How much better than to be taken away by death in a fit of impatience? And this is recorded for our instruction, pointing, as it does, a lesson we all need to take heart. It is the part of wisdom to leave ourselves and our affairs in God's gracious hands, trusting him fully and being willing for him to use his own measures and methods with us. We are certain to sustain serious loss if we determine to have our own way. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Psalm 106.15 the mature Christian will assure his younger brethren that today he thanks God for refusing the answers he once craved. God denies thy request now because he has ordained something better for thee. In the translation of Elijah we have both a pledge and a type of the supernatural exit from this world which every child of God experiences. In the course of these chapters we have pointed out again and again that though in certain respects the character and career of Elijah was an extraordinary one, yet in its broad outlines he is to be regarded as a representative saint. Thus it was in connection with the final event. No ordinary departure from this world was his, and vastly different from the common end to earthly existence experienced by the wicked is that of the righteous. Death as the wages of sin has been abolished for the redeemed. For them physical dissolution is but the body being put to sleep. As for the soul, it is conveyed by angels into God's immediate presence, Luke 16.22, which is certainly a supernatural experience. Nor shall all God's people even sleep, 1 Corinthians 15.51. That generation of them alive on the earth at the return of the Savior shall have their bodies changed, that they may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Philippians 3.21 and shall be caught up together with the resurrected saints to meet the Lord in the air 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Thus a supernatural exit from this world is assured to all the ransom hosts of God. This is the end of the book. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.